103 for our time in the Word this morning, Psalm 103. Today is a unique service. Uh, like Hunter said, it is a tradition that we have around here. Uh, so our time in the Word will be a little bit different this morning. Uh, in just a few moments, we're going to get ready to partake in communion or the Lord's table. And then we're going to share what God's been doing in our lives. And so as we look to Scripture to prepare our hearts to do that, I want to look at a few different passages of Scripture this morning. And the first one I want to look at is Psalm 130. So let me encourage you to turn there. Uh, while you're turning there, I will open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we are just so thankful for the fact that you have been faithful our entire lives. And Lord, not just our small, short lives, but you have been faithful since the beginning of time. And so we just want to pause and give you thanks and praise your name for that. I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And as we look towards the cross and how, as believers, we are, our thanks ultimately comes from that. Awaken our hearts to the sacrifice you made to earn forgiveness so that we could be restored to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 130, beginning of verse number one. The Bible says, Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Uh, this particular psalm is one of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. These psalms were sung by the Jewish people as they would make their, uh, as they would journey up into Jerusalem for one of three annual festivals that they had every year. And as they traveled to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs and they would be reminded of God's salvation and God's blessing to them individually and as a people. And what I love about the Psalms of Ascent is we see there was intentionality in this tradition that they had to focus their hearts on what God had done for them and what God would do for them. And this particular psalm of ascent is, I think, especially applicable for us today because it focuses on our individual need for deliverance, and as it ends, it also focuses on our corporate need and dependence on God, which is exactly what we're doing here this morning. We're taking time to corporately remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ. We're going to individually have a time of self-reflection, and then as we end the service, we're going to have a time where we can stand and just praise God and say, look at how he's been good in my life. This psalm is also considered one of the penitential psalms, or the psalms of confession. There are several psalms throughout the book of Psalms that are used to confess our need of God and, and confess our need and say, God, I need you. God, I'm so dependent on you. In verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, we see our individual need for him. Uh, the writer of the psalm shows us our correct place, and that is in the depths. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, God. This pleading to be heard by God demonstrates our total inability to help ourselves. Lord, it's from the depths that I cry out to you. I have no platform to stand on, Lord. 
there's, there's, there's nothing in me that merits you hearing me. So it's from the depths that I call out to you, God. And the problem that we face and the problem that the psalmist faces as he writes is guilt. Guilt of sin. Verse 3 poignantly states, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? The Hebrew word there for the English phrase, kept an account, it means to keep or to guard or to preserve. So what the psalmist is saying is, look, if God preserved our sin, if God kept it, if he refused to let them go, we would all be doomed. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? Not me. None of us. None of us can make any claim to perfection. None of us could claim to stand before God. None of us could stand in God's sight because of our sin. But, but, he says in verse number four, with God, there is forgiveness. God is ready to deal with his people and to pour out, to eagerly pour out on us his love, his mercy, and his grace, and his forgiveness. I mean, look at verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Now, this forgiveness that God lavishly pours out on us should lead us into reverence of God. It should lead us to stand in awe of God. It leads us to just marvel at the way God has dealt with us. God, when I consider my guilt, when I consider the depths that I am down in, when I consider I have no platform to stand on before you, God, I am so guilty. And as I consider your forgiveness, Lord, I revere your name. I stand in awe of who you are. Now, to help us understand, uh, help us to stand in awe of God's forgiveness and the lengths that he went to so that we could be forgiven, this morning we're going to take some time and look at the cross. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 is where we see the crucifixion account. We're going to drop in right in the middle of the events that preceded the crucifixion in verse number 22. Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate asked them, what should, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? There had been a trial. They now take him before Pilate. And Pilate is asking this crowd of people that have brought Jesus to him, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all, the entire crowd that was there, they all answered, crucify him. Then he, Pilate, said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Mob mentality completely took over. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then they released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Now let's pause here for a minute. What happened when it says that Jesus was flogged? It almost seems like it's just kind of stuck in there when we're considering the crucifixion narrative. What happened when Jesus was flogged? Well, in 2003, the South African Medical Journal did an in-depth uh, medical and historical study on Roman crucifixion. In Rome, when a criminal was sentenced to death by crucifixion, they were often scourged or flogged first. Now, during this flogging or scourging, the person was completely stripped naked, they were tied to a post, and then they were flogged from their shoulders down to the back of their legs by these Roman soldiers. This was usually done with wooden staves or short whips with leather thongs that had metal or bones tied to the end of them. 
under Jewish law, flogging was limited to 40 blows because 40 blows was considered the death penalty. They thought that's all a human being can take before they die, but Roman law had no limit. Scourging was intended to weaken the victim significantly, resulting in deep wounds, severe pain, and bleeding. Frequently, the victims would faint during the procedure, and it wasn't uncommon for people to die in the middle of this part and not even make it to the crucifixion. The victim, while this was going on, was typically taunted, made fun of. After they were flogged, they would be forced to carry what was called the the patabellum. That's the the crossbar of the cross, the part where their hands were stretched out on they were forced, they, were t- they had that tied to their shoulders, and then they were forced to carry it to their place of crucifixion. Historians estimate that the crossbar of the cross typically weighed about 125 pounds. As we're going to see in a minute, Jesus wasn't physically able to carry his, so they had somebody else do it. A set of Roman guards who would be commanded by a centurion would then accompany the, the condemned to the place of crucifixion. And there would be a herald that would go ahead announcing what was taking place. And they would stay on duty until the victim of the crucifixion would die. But as that herald would walk ahead, bystanders would come and deride or taunt the condemned. This is what we see happening in Matthew 27, or 22 verses, or 27 verses 27 through 32. Verse 27, the Bible says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the whole governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. So this whole company of soldiers. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him. They took the staff and they kept hitting him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. And as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, once the victim was at the place of crucifixion, if they hadn't already been stripped naked, they would then strip them naked, make them lie on their wounded back, stretch out their arms on the crossbar of the cross. And oftentimes they would tie their arms to the cross or they would use iron nails and they would drive their hands through their wrists or their upper forearms to secure them to that portion of the cross. Once they were on it, they would pick him up and attach it to the center post. And then they would tie or nail the victim's feet to it. Often the feet would be nailed on the sides of the cross. Often they would also nail them together, one over the top. They would drive the nail right through the metatarsal bones of the feet. It's the part of your feet that connects it to your ankle. They would do this with the knees bent. This allowed the victim to painfully push themselves up and gasp for air, slowing down their death. They used a person's own survival instinct to prolong the pain of the crucifixion. It was common for soldiers to divide or to argue over the victim's clothes, to divide them among themselves while waiting for him to die. A quick crucifixion would take three to four hours, often though it would last three to four days. If there was reason to expedite death, we see this in Jesus' crucifixion, to ensure that death had set in, they would break the victim's legs right beneath the knees or stab him with a spear through the heart and the upper abdomen and chest. Breaking the legs of the victim would keep them from being able to push up, and it would just cause them to suffocate quicker. The main cause of death in the majority of victims would have been asphyxiation from a severely hampered respiration, 
Secondary cardiovascular collapse would also happen. The slow death would have included multiple organ failures caused by circulatory collapse due to hypervolemic shock. Hypervolemic shock is a condition in which severe blood or other fluid loss makes the heart unable to pump enough blood to the body, which causes all your organs to shut down. Death by crucifixion was excruciating in every sense of the word. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the Latin word, which the root of is crux or cross. Excruciating literally means from the cross. And that's just the physical agony Jesus endured while he was on the cross for our sins. Several scripture passages help us understand the spiritual agony he went to. Look at verses 45 and 46 in Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Imagine, Jesus hung on the cross, forsaken by the Father, so that we would never have to be forsaken again. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. As Jesus hung on the cross, he became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord God, Jehovah God the Father, has punished him, punished Jesus for the iniquity of us all. The physical agony Jesus went through, but then the spiritual agony of becoming sin, becoming a curse, being punished by God for our sin. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ bore the sinner's sin, and thus he had to be treated as though he were a sinner, though a sinner he could never be. Commenting on Jesus' last cry on the cross, Spurgeon went on to say, with his full consent, Jesus Christ suffered as though he had committed the transgression that was laid on him. Neither the records of time nor even eternity contains a sentence more filled with anguish. Here you may look into, you may look as into a vast abyss, as though you strain your eyes and gaze until sight fails you, yet you perceive no bottom. He said this anguish is measureless, unfathomable, inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on our behalf is no more to be measured in weighed than the sin that needed it or the love that endured it. This is the sacrifice of Jesus for you and for me. This is why when we read Psalm 134, we read, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Now, this psalm was written before the cross, but we read it, and oh, what meaning it has. With you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered, so that we may stand in awe of what you have done for us, Lord. 
as we take time to reflect on the lengths that Christ went to so that we could experience forgiveness. It should produce in us the sense of reverence, this awe, the sense of wonder, the sense of majesty, the sense of overwhelming, Lord, I can't even comprehend. In fact, Isaiah tells us that it's beyond man's comprehension. Isaiah 55, verses 7, 8, and 9, the Bible says, let the wicked one abandon his way. Let the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. As high as, as, for as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. God says, my forgiveness, my compassion is so great, we can't even understand it. The forgiveness and love of God is past human understanding. And it should fill our hearts with a sense of awe and wonder. Our hearts should just overflow with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, communion is about reflecting on and reminding ourselves about the sacrifice of Jesus. It's reminding ourselves, this is what our forgiveness cost. Communion is when we collectively come together and remember that cost. One more passage I'll ask you to turn to this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is giving instruction to the church at Corinth on this ordinance, this ritual that we as a church do to remember an aspect of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, the Bible says, this is Paul writing, he says, For I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment unto himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give you instructions about the other matters when I come. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer and personal self-examination. The self-examination we see in verse 28 is an integral part in remembering the death of Jesus. We saw earlier in the book of Philippians several weeks ago how we're challenged to live worthy of the gospel. We want to make sure that the way our life lives reflects that we are a forgiven people. The church at Corinth was using this ordinance as a means of division. People were treating it as an opportunity for selfish indulgence, amplifying the division between the rich and the poor. This passage demonstrates that sin can blind us even in our worship. And so we have a time of self-reflection.
we have a time to pause and pray what the psalmist did in Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. As we as believers prepare to partake in the Lord's table, we confess our sin, acknowledging our continual need for God's sanctifying grace. And as we confess our sin and remember Christ's sacrifice, we are reminded that we are a forgiven people. And as we do this, we recall this great act of love and we proclaim our need for the power of his death and the strength until he comes. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're reminded that the death of Jesus is what continually makes his grace available to us and it has secured our forgiveness. And so as we prepare to partake, I'm gonna pray for us corporately as a church family. When I'm done praying, we're gonna have a time of self-examination, prayer, and reflection. It'll be a quiet time. I'll say amen after I'm done praying and then we'll just go into a few moments of quiet self-reflection. There'll be no music. It's just gonna be quiet. And we wanna pray, God, search me and know me. Let's pray. Search us, God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our concerns. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse us from our hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servants from willful sins. Do not let them rule us. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we have no merit, but we know that the merits of Jesus stand for us. We are undeserving, but we look to your tender mercy. Lord, we're full of infirmities, wants, sins, but you are full of grace. We confess our sin our frequent sin, our willful sin. And all these sins, we mourn and we lament. We're a fading leaf that the wind drives away, but you have given us another master and Lord, your son, Jesus. And now our hearts are turned towards holiness. Spirit, save us from the love of the world and the pride of life and from everything natural to fallen man. And let Christ's nature be seen in us every day. Work in us a more profound and abiding repentance. Give us the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet always trusts and loves, which is always powerful and always confident. Grant that through tears of repentance we may, more, we may see more clearly the brightness and glories of your saving cross. Let me encourage us to keep our heads bowed and eyes closed as we go into a time of personal examination and prayer. Uh, if you'd like to use a psalm as a guide for this, Psalm 38 and 51 are two well-known psalms of confession that those would be helpful. In a few moments, we're going to collectively read through Psalm 130, and then I'll give some instructions for communions. But for the next few moments, we just want to be still and let the Spirit show us what we need to confess and experience the mercy and forgiveness of Christ.